Hello everyone, it's June 21st, 2022. This week, Lucy has a new target in the Trojans that was found orbiting an original target, kind of a two-for-one special. On the downside, Lucy is still working on latching a loose solar array, but there's a possible fix, so there's still hope. So let's get to it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 364 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So I hear that there's tinfoil on Mars, which is a very tinfoil hat sounding conspiracy. I'm sure the tinfoil hats think it was aliens. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> the, the tinfoil hats all freak out and put aliens in their head. Yeah. So uh, Perseverance saw something shiny uh, on Mars and like that happens, but usually only after you've drilled into a rock for something to be shiny, it's got to have you know, a nice clean surface and uh, that that doesn't happen when something is being pummeled with sand and or windblown sand. Uh, mm. So it's unusual. And uh, it was kind of wedged in a rock that's protruding out of the the dune in that area. And yeah, it's got like regular dots in a grid. It's very alien. And uh, I'm I'm actually pretty shocked that I haven't seen anybody on Reddit freaking out about it. The the space subreddit is always filled with people posting photos of uh, photos from Mars and saying, you know, I, de- I demand that you explain this. This is this is only uh-huh. aliens. And it's like, well, no, it's a rock. You've looked at right. a million billion rocks on Mars, and this one happens to look square and sharp mm-hmm. from this angle. Like, come on. Yeah. Uh, I think there was a, a door uh, that they were talking about most recently. There was just basically a little gap in the rocks and the way the shadows fell on it made it look very square. And so they thought it was an unnatural little entrance to presumably Martian underground dwellings or something. And was it? Nope. It was rocks. It was always rocks. rocks. Okay. So, so what was this shiny thing? It was a thermal blanket. <laughs> Apparently, it's thermal shielding, or at least that's the hypothesis yeah. at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was my, like a mylar blanket or an aluminum blanket. What's cool is that the the Perseverance team tweeted uh, some uh, a picture of some different thermal blanket material samples, and you can just see exactly how it has that same foiliness as well as the dot pattern on there and everything. So, and they they think it came from the from the descent stage right the sky crane mm-hmm. yeah it says it landed about two kilometers away so i guess yeah. i don't know where perseverance is in relation to where it was set down but i guess about two kilometers although that could have fallen down you know within a pretty wide radius but um well it it might have it might have just uh torn off of the sky crane and blown here right right is is the wind strong enough to i mean in in that pressure i think the wind is probably strong enough to blow some some mylar around i mean something that lightweight right yeah. even though mm-hmm. there's much lower pressure there there's lower gravity and again it's just a little piece of foil essentially and it, it certainly looks like it's kind of wedged or you know pinned in a rock like it looks like it was dropped there by wind this looks like somewhere where it would stop blowing so it's kind of cool Lucy in the news with updates. Good title. That's Dennis. Like, yeah. I don't want anybody thinking that I came up with that one. <laughs> so I guess, Dennis, you ha- you have to sing this particular topic. <laughs> Everyone could just imagine me singing it. Okay. That, and you'll get that song stuck in your head now. Yeah. So apparently Lucy has a new target at L4. So they're targeting Polymele. And this is a actually I don't know how big the Trojan asteroids generally are, but this one seems to me to be a pretty decent size. Like, or is that about average that's a good question i guess uh it's it's on the smaller side for lucy's targets but of course lucy is 
tending to go after the bigger ones because bigger ones are easier to see, I guess, right? There's a selection effect. And I suppose the bigger ones are also easier to interact with, do you think? Is that perhaps a reason? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if Lucy's going to actually, uh, I mean, it's just going to do flybys of these mm -hmm. each time. But right? I mean, like, yeah, but like even trying to like maintain proximity to it, like maybe mm. it's a little bit easier if it's like a large object. and Yeah, probably if it's brighter, then you know it's, you, you know it's orbit better. And so then when it comes to mm -hmm. doing your flyby, you have more accuracy there. That makes sense. But yeah, when you say like typical, that, that depends on, you know, if you're just thinking about asteroids that just exist, period, well, there's just going to be more of the smaller ones. And so, um, but of the types of asteroids that we see and we go to and everything, Palomelia is 21 kilometers uh, mm -hmm. long. And so for comparison, uh, Ryugu was less than a kilometer in size, so certainly bigger than uh, Ryugu. And, uh, when it comes to Bennu, Bennu is about half a kilometer in size. And so, yeah, significantly larger than uh, the ones that we've been doing our sample returns to recently. Those rubble piles. But what's what's exciting and what's, you know, the news for uh, Lucy as far as uh, Palomili goes is that uh, it passed in front, the asteroid passed in front of a star recently. Uh, it's called a stellar occultation. And you can learn things about the uh, object when it does that uh, because you know the position of the star very, very well. And uh, essentially, the way that the starlight dipped, they were able to find a little companion to it. Hmm. And so, uh, about 200 kilometers away from Palomelia is a small little currently unnamed moon that's uh, only five kilometers in diameter. So, one-fourth the size of Palomelia. So, almost so more like a, a, a binary system than just a, a moon. Do you, do you know if that was a second dip in the light curve? Or are they so far away that their apparent size is smaller than the star? That seems kind of... I'm assuming a second dip. So, that's that's really lucky. It's like its orbit had to be just so that you could actually hit it with the star a second time. That's really cool. Did we image its moon or did we see a perturbation? I mean, like, I can't imagine that you could see it by polymele actually wobbling because I'm assuming for this kind of occultation, you basically get two data points, the beginning and the end of the occultation. Or, or I guess if it's a curve, you know, you get more data than that. But like, I can't imagine that you would see that we would have its orbit characterized well enough that we could tell that it was wobbling. Because that's probably not something that you'd be able to see in, in the light curve because the transit's going to be much, much shorter than one orbit. And it's not like we had its its orbit so well characterized that we could see a difference that we could measure precisely enough to say, oh, that's slightly ahead of where it should be. There must be a companion ahead of it in its orbit and has wobbled forward versus wobbled backwards right my yeah my guess is that the orbital velocities of these are so much are so slow compared to the uh the time that the transit takes place so like you're yeah. saying if, if the period is so much larger that you wouldn't notice yeah yeah polymele if it was getting if it's moving from left to right but it's on its orbit trying to move from right to left that would make it pass through the star even quicker than it would yeah. otherwise because uh, yeah. of that motion of the companion. Yeah. So I, I really, I haven't looked at the paper, but I'm really guessing it's just a, a second dip. Yeah. It's gotta the, be in the curve, man. How lucky that's, so, <laughs> that's really fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, admittedly the starlight, right. Is, is, is blurred to an extent. Um, yeah. So it's not that it had to be this passing in front of a infinitesimally tiny point of light, but uh, 
but still really really lucky because yeah if it's uh if the moon's orbit around Palomili was significantly different it would have been detected at all and so this this was a similar way just as an aside how the rings of uh, Uranus were detected as well. Basically, really? it was it was going to do a, a, a an occultation of a star, and they were noticing dips in that starlight before the disk of Uranus even got there, and then symmetric dips on its way out, and that was inferred to be rings uh, leading and trailing behind Uranus hmm. during that. Yeah, that. That makes so, sense. Yeah. So yeah, so Lucy has yet another target, which is great. I think we're up to eight now, and so it's unnamed. Uh, they've been informally nicknaming it. Uh, Sean after Sean the sheep, which I didn't know that this sheep was called Sean, but it's that kind of claymation Wallace and Gromit looking sheep that I'm sure you've seen. Yeah, isn't point. isn't that from yeah. uh, um, the Mechanical Pants episode? You know more than me. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, it, it's funny because like I I absolutely knew that the sheep was named Sean because I can see uh, Wallace screaming Sean in in my head <laughs> a close shave that's the name of the episode <laughs> sorry <Close shave. laughs> my childhood is rushing back to me that's awesome so uh this isn't the first time that lucy's target list changed uh in 2020 before it was launched they found a uh, companion for, for uh Eurybates, uh which is the second target that uh lucy will visit and the first one at l4 that it'll check out Euripides. Euripides or Euripides Euripides I I am totally going off my the extent of my Greek pronunciation comes from ordering food at Greek restaurants uh (laughs) so (laughs) (laughs) no you're right I mean I didn't look at uh, the pronunciation ahead of time but you're exactly right yeah oh okay Euripides so who knows fingers crossed maybe we'll have even more targets popping up as we continue to use ground-based assets to look at these (laughs) Yeah. Well, now is is Lucy capable, and probably not. I don't know, but of like maybe making more discoveries along the way as it gets closer. I th- I, I could believe so. Yeah. It it has similar cameras to a lot of what was on New Horizons, and so I'm sure that means it's got some wide enough fieldish imagers that would be able to see something possibly. I don't know though if it's any better though than uh, what we can do with something like a uh, Hubble or these high cadence surveys from the ground. So I guess, uh, yeah, so tell us about uh, the Ultraflex Circular Solar Arrays, which are interesting, and and try to describe them, because I don't know how you describe how those work. I thought I had a pretty good description. Um, uh, Have you all seen those uh, party decorations? The first one that comes to mind is uh, a pineapple, but they're sold flat-packed, and you um, open them like a book, and there is... um, tissue paper inside that's uh that forms a bunch of diamonds and as you open it up they form this radially symmetric shape or they kind of open up well not the whole diameter but they're kind of like traditional japanese fans which are apparently called uchiwa i don't know where the stress goes there but if you think of like Mm. a fan you know how those open up it's kind of like that except that it goes the whole way yeah Yeah. And, and i think most people would tend to refer to this as a fan uh but it it doesn't I don't know. It it just reminds me of those pineapples. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. Um, and then if that's not good enough, um, oh, honeycomb is the name of that diamond structure. That makes sense. So uh, if that's not good enough, there is a link in the show notes to a YouTube video of them testing the unfolding of this in um, a thermal vacuum chamber um, at 
uh, Lockheed Martin's facility in, in Colorado. And uh, notably, uh, they are not doing the vacuum thermal test because there are people walking around. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really a fantastic mechanism that allows you to pack a very large solar array in a very small volume and also to put a lot of, you know, PV cells on very little mass. The, the substrate that actually holds, uh, the, the actual cells in their place is, uh, as far as I know, it's, it's just like, um, ca- uh, it's just capped on, uh, as far as I know. So like really lightweight, uh, lovely mechanism. And when Lucy first, uh, started moving into its operational configuration. One of them opened up all the way um, where the the two book covers, as it were, if you're totally destroying the spine of this book, um, <laughs> one, uh, one of them, the, the moving book cover, made it all the way around 360 degrees and latched into place. The other one opened pretty far, but not all the way. Um, the number I keep seeing is 96%. Now, that might not seem like a lot of deficit, but remember that this is a flexible structure. And so it's designed to open all the way. And if it doesn't, it's going to be slack and it will be uh, floppy. 96% is good enough for, um, for collecting solar power if there's plenty of sun, but uh, Lucy is going to be the most distant uh, spacecraft to ever be powered with solar rays. Like this is really a, a high, a high demand sort of situation. You, you really don't mm-hmm. have a lot of, of wiggle room, uh, pun intended. So they started working on, on getting this issue fixed. And, uh, the way they're going about it is, um, they, they've, they believe that what happened is that the lanyard, uh, that pulls the the moving bookend or uh the moving book cover all the way around into place um they believe that the lanyard slipped or lost tension at some point and slipped off of its reel um and so like that makes a lot of sense the problem is that now it's going to be winding the lanyard onto whatever axle that reel is on um you know there's a pretty good potential for jamming it in place. Uh, but also the diameter is much smaller. So you have to move, uh, the reel around a lot farther to pull in the same amount of lanyard. Um, but you know, they've got, uh, they've got engineering models on earth and, and they decided, yeah, we can go ahead and run the motor, um, and suck up more of this lanyard and we should be okay. So, uh, they uploaded some commands to uh, to go ahead and do extra tensioning steps to to run this motor a little farther. Um, and what's pretty cool is that you know it's a motor in space, so it's a very fancy motor, and it has primary and also backup windings um, that actually drive that motion. And so they activated both of the windings um, to generate extra torque. I mean, I'm assuming it's going to be roughly double, uh, a, a little bit less than double because you know you've got all these uh efficiency losses um i'm i I believe but i mean i guess it's basically like running a stepper motor um in like a micro stepping mode something like that where you're using multiple uh multiple windings at once but anyway um using the primary and backup windings generates more heat so they're you know doing these short run times 
to make sure that they're not overheating the motor. Um, and they, they built this command sequence that I don't know if it does multiple, uh, winding steps or not, but they, they ran this command four times so far. And, and each time they did it, uh, they did actually see the array open farther and farther. The way that they're writing their updates, it's really clear that, you know, they're not able to directly measure how far open, um, the the solar array is so it's not like the hinge in the middle of the array has a rotary encoder on it or anything i don't believe i think what they're looking at is uh light collected um right. but they're they're seeing Power. the array um open up more and more um which would correlate with the array being stiffer and stiffer so again they, they've done this four times they are planning at least one more uh one more try uh, i think they're probably going to go either until the latch latches or until they don't see any more movement um they they probably have a good under since they have a good understanding of the vehicle they probably have a point where they say okay this you know, this amount of movement means that we're getting ready to break something because the worst thing, uh, would be to snap the tether, uh, to snap the lanyard or to pull it out of its anchor at one end or the other, and then just lose the array entirely. You don't want it to start opening back up <laughs> or, or rather uh, folding back up. back up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That would be really disastrous. Not only would that be bad for power, but it would also be bad for the actual mechanics of the vehicle. Remember, they have to do engine burns with this thing. And if you've got a solar array that's this big and is potentially moving or um, not where it should be, even if it's relatively static, if it's not where it should be, you can have um, off-axis uh, sort of thrust as the center gravity's off. You can have the movement begin to do damage to the solar array. You can have the movement um, affect the vehicle's ability to stay pointed in the same direction. It's it's attitude control. So a, a lot of bad things could happen. Yeah, and just to emphasize, right? These these are seven meters or twenty four feet in diameter. So they are they are massive, or they're, they're yeah they're they're quite big. That's more than enough to offset the center of mass from where you uh, were planning it to be when you would fire your thrusters and do all your good stuff. Yeah, exactly. I'm, yeah, <laughs> they're shockingly huge uh, when you see a person next to them, but even just with no scale, just seeing Lucy on its own, it's like, oh, that's a lot of solar array because Jupiter. <laughs> so one of the things that I I thought was interesting was looking at artist renderings of this. It is a good way to get um, sort of oriented for, for how these sit in relation to Lucy. And so basically, um, you know, we, we've got these two book covers and when Lucy launched, they were folded up against the sides of the spacecraft. Um, and then they, they folded down, but they didn't fold down to a 90 degree angle. They're still canted up a little bit. I, my brain immediately says, uh, dihedral. Uh, because of airplane wings, but they're still canted up a little bit. And then the, the moving side of the book cover opens down and then around and up and then latches closed uh, all the way around. And so because this thing is almost all the way open, my first thought was, well, when they, when they start up the engine, uh, maybe that's heavy enough to, uh, to actually, you know, sag under gravity and the, the book 
cover will latch into place. Um, but looking at it more, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I don't know how heavy the, the book covers are. Um, they're triangular. They look like they're made out of carbon fiber. So they're probably pretty light. Uh, the question is, how much mass do they have in relation to the solar array? Because, um, if you think about, you know, this, this pineapple opening, if you're looking top down on the pineapple decoration, since you're holding one of those cardboard covers in your hand and then the other one folds down, down, up and around, if you hold that so that the cover that you're holding is parallel with the horizon, um, that's the direction, gravity is the direction of the, thrust acceleration, right? So when it's sitting in this configuration, half of the solar array is outboard of the hinge. That would be the fulcrum that this thing rotates around. And the, since the thrust comes up through the middle, that hinge uh, separates the array into two halves. And when they're pulling on each other uh, under thrust, the right half should be balanced by the left half. Well, in this case, the, the, the half that's outboard, it's half of the array. The half that's inboard is, is really only, it's two quarters. One quarter is attached to the fixed book cover. The other end is attached to the moving book cover. And if the book covers are zero mass, then that means that this array will always be pulled open under thrust because there's more mass uh, on the other side, on the, on the wrong side of the fulcrum. Mm-hmm. Am, am I, am I describing this? Does this make sense? I think so. I mean, I'm looking at a picture of it, so I get what you're saying, but if I didn't have that picture to go by, I'm not yeah. sure, but I think so. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I don't know what a better way to describe it is. I mean, you, you know, it's a Pac-Man shape and you can think of a line running through the point of Pac-Man's mouth as being the, the tipping point. If you're, if you're, standing Pac-Man up and putting him under gravity. So it really comes down to the question of, is the moving bookend or book cover, is it uh, heavier than a quarter of the shield? Because if it is, then under thrust, it will push itself against the latch. If it's not, it'll be pulled up away from the latch because of all of the solar array on the other side of this fulcrum. How much thrust is it generating? Because if it's not a lot of thrust, I don't know how much difference it would make either way. You know, like it seems like it would have to be a pretty good jolt in order to get it to latch shut. Yeah, it, de- it depends on how, how much force it takes to, to actuate that latch. Those thrusters are monoprops, but there's also an oxygen tank or an oxidizer tank on board. So there must be a biprop something. Okay, I think I found the main engine. Aleros 1C. We're talking 87 to 106 pounds force of thrust. So its dry mass is 1,800 pounds. So we're talking about half a meter per second squared. So it's the spacecraft thrusts with 470 newtons. Then it's going to accelerate about half a meter per second squared. Half a meter per second squared. I mean, yeah, exactly. Chubby in the chat translates that into human. Uh, That's 120th 20th of Earth's gravity. I mean, I don't know. It really depends on on this latch. You know, it's probably very low actuation force. It's not a... Uh, a ZIF connector, right? Like it's not a zero insertion force connector, but, uh, uh, one, one twentieth of our gravity. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, you need to maybe. ask, what is the force that this lanyard is supposed to be exerting on it? I mean, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's not elastic. So presumably nearly infinite. 
the for the lanyard itself the the motor the the motor probably puts a huge it's probably capable of of quite a lot of force i don't know because because to to calculate that you'd really need to know uh how much torque the engine or the motor is rated for how much torque they're actually um asking it to put out and the diameter of the reel um, right i mean i'm just saying where, where the where the lanyard connects to the uh moving part yeah. how much force is it tugging on that moving part of the panel right exactly yeah yeah yeah. and and that's something that like is beyond our get into the weeds ability um, <laughs> unless we can find a document that actually states it like i don't think there's a way for us to to back of the napkin it oh no yeah and either way like that'll be you know three or four times higher than the amount of force that's actually needed i guess the conclusion is we just don't know i mean it's it's pretty it's pretty tenuous to begin with mm-hmm. whether or not that would actually help. And we can also infer that they're not talking about it. So, <laughs> or based on them not talking about it, we can infer that that's not really an option they're considering. Yeah. The the best that they've said is that they find it to be likely that this will be enough stiffness uh, to continue the mission. They say, you know, they're like, yeah. well, we're not a hundred percent sure, but they, they find it to be likely. That's the only option. I was just thinking, is there anything else they could do? And the only thing I can come up with is, is they could nudge up against an asteroid seat. <laughs> God, could you imagine like you come up to an asteroid and it has like this long protrusion. That's just right mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. be able to push on your solar array and not damage it. Okay, so let's do three short and sweets as usual. And Dennis, what's the first? First up, Starliner gets its first crew. NASA has assigned veteran astronauts Butch Wilmar and Sonny Williams to fly Starliner's Crew Flight Test, or CFT, a two-week mission scheduled no later than late this year. Williams was originally assigned to the first operational Starliner mission, while Wilmore replaced Boeing commercial astronaut Chris Ferguson when he dropped out of the mission for personal reasons. Nicole Mann and Mike Fink have also been associated with this mission, although Mann was eventually assigned to SpaceX Crew 5, and Fink now serves as backup to the CFT crew. All right, next, uh, ISS performs debris avoidance maneuver. The International Space Station's Progress 81 supply spacecraft performed one of its additional duties recently by firing its thruster for four minutes, 34 seconds in a predetermined debris avoidance maneuver or PDAM. The maneuver did not impact station operations and was undertaken to provide an extra measure of distance between the ISS and the predicted track of a fragment of Cosmos 1408 debris formed as part of a Russian anti-satellite weapon test last year. The PDAM increased the altitude of the station by 0.3 miles at Apogee and 0.7 miles at Perigee. And afterwards, a scheduled reboost of the station by the Cygnus NG-17 vehicle took place as well, a first for this type of spacecraft. And then next up, Markuzik steps down as CEO of Firefly. Tom Markuzik, co-founder of Firefly Aerospace, will be leaving his role as chief executive and instead serve as chief technical advisor. The reason for the change in leadership is a result of AE Industrial Partners' acquisition of a significant stake in Firefly. The private equity firm wanted new leadership as Firefly prepares for the second launch of its Alpha rocket from Vandenberg no earlier than mid-July, its first launch having failed nearly a year ago. A new CEO has not yet been found, but Markuzik has stated he's happy with the new partnership. So that's a positive spin, Um, I guess. I don't know. So there's some job opening available. Yeah. Nice. (laughs) 
<laughs> so moving on to this week in spaceflight history, lots of winners this week. We have Sty Garfield, Uncle Willie, Hydrak, Desky Miller, Peter McMalley, James Barton, and The Greek. And yeah, before we move on, I got to uh, apologize to Hydrak. I saw your direct message last week. Uh, it didn't have the hashtag this week SF, so it wasn't grabbed by my bot. And I planned on making sure that it made it in and i forgot <laughs> so apologies uh-huh. i don't think you were right last week anyway uh i don't i don't remember last week was my crazy clue that nobody got so <laughs> my instinct is that <laughs> that's enough. Yeah. but i mean how bad would it be if if uh nobody got it except for one person and i totally forgot about them <laughs> so anyway yeah that would suck <laughs> Thank you for, for giving it a, a second shot, Hydrack. And you got it right this week. And the clue was enjoy the extra leg room while it lasts. And so that was a pretty, I guess, a pretty obvious clue. Uh, the event was on June 27th, 1982, and it was the launch of Columbia, which was SCS-4. So yeah, the clue, we'll just get to that at the top. Um, so this was the final two-person flight of the shuttle program. So yeah, the extra leg room is just because you you just have two crew on board. They have plenty of room, you know. Yeah, there's a clue. Pretty obvious. <laughs> um, so yeah, this was the fourth launch of Columbia, and I guess it was the fourth launch of any shuttle to space, really, because they were all Columbia for those first four flights. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, you had Enterprise, but those were, you know, not the same thing. Um, they did not go to space. And this was also the first STS launch to lift off on schedule, uh, because prior to that, they had some technical issues here and there. The people who were critics of the shuttle program were kind of wondering how feasible this really was because, you know, they just kept running into problems, which obviously that wouldn't be the last time. I mean, that's kind of an ongoing thing, but at least for this particular mission, uh, it did lift off on schedule, um, but mm-hmm. it almost didn't. And we'll get to that in a second. So I guess first up, who are the first or who are the two astronauts, the two crew? So we have Ken Mattingly and um, just a quick rundown of their prior spaceflight experience and to put them in context a little bit. Yeah. If you, if you happen to know who Ken Mattingly if you don't happen yeah. to know who Ken Mattingly is. <laughs> so uh, Ken Mattingly famously was someone who was supposed to fly on Apollo 13, but he was diagnosed with measles. Uh, and of course, that ended up not being the case. Like, he mm-hmm. didn't have measles. Was it, was it that he had measles or was exposed to somebody that had measles? I think he was tested and diagnosed. He was diagnosed exposed. With it. Oh, he, he was, was exposed. Well, he, was, he never developed measles. I believe right, the, he didn't develop it. Yeah. The line was the, the flowers aren't blooming or something like that. I thought it was like a false positive test result, but that's mm. not the case. It was just that I, he was exposed and they said you can't. From fly. what I remember, yeah, I believe so. Okay. But uh, he did fly eventually on Apollo 16 as the command module pilot. So, you know. He eventually got to fly. Yeah. So on to the pilot. Uh, the pilot of this particular mission was Henry Hartsfield, and uh, he served as Capcom on STS-1 and a backup for STS-2 and 3. And so thanks to Dennis, who um, included mm. a chapter from, um, what's it called? Uh, Bold oh, Day Rise. Bold Day Rise, yeah. Yeah, which I have to get my hands on, by the way. I was reading it, and I was like, okay, well, we'll put it the next page, but you didn't put all those up. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting book. So there's a lot of kind of like behind-the-scenes information or really just just, you know, firsthand accounts. And um, what's interesting about uh, these first missions is that the crew were rotated in a strange way that I actually didn't quite understand. But I think that basically they had to serve as backup for a couple of missions. Then they served as the primary crew for a later mission, but also that they were not actually aware of this. And um, on this mission, both Mattingly and Hartsfield were unaware that they were training as the backup crew for STS-2 and 3. And the primary crew got very worried about this and 
And apparently Jack Lusma, he was like freaking out and he was like, what's going on here? You know, have we been grounded and, you know, have we been called off? But apparently it's just that they were training as a backup crew, but no one knew this. And I don't know why NASA wouldn't tell them, you know, didn't like let them know explicitly that you're just training as backup and that uh -huh. you'll fly later. Um, is there a reason for that that you can think of? Like why they were kept in the dark about it? Uh, no, not that I okay. know. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't think of anything. But anyway, luckily, you know, they got to fly on the STS-4 mission. So uh, just had to wait a couple flights. Getting to what almost delayed uh, this particular launch was that the previous day there had been a severe thunderstorm, which actually produced some hail, which had then damaged the orbiter, specifically the heat tiles. And yeah, going back to the book again, Mattingly and Hartsfield, they said that they walked out to inspect the orbiter just after the hailstorm and they saw these little white specks on the heat tiles now i don't know what those were i don't know if that was like hail stuck to it or something else it was discoloration caused by damage but they thought we're not flying tomorrow because there's just no way but then they flew a tile expert apparently in a t-38 from houston to inspect the tiles and <laughs> that guy gave them the green light and i had read that also that they actually did do repairs so it was described as spackling and i'm sure that there was no spackling involved but that was just a term that was used so i don't know what they did to fix it i have an idea maybe mm. so yeah they were given the green light to fly and they took off the following day on schedule but the next thing that happens is very interesting and this kind of blew my mind i don't know if we have ever discussed this before but during ascent columbia was underperforming they were um, expending more fuel than they should have been and it was later discovered that the damaged tiles had actually soaked up water because uh the waterproofing layer um, had been stripped by the hail and mm. apparently these tiles soaked up a total amount, and this is just, a, you know, like an estimate, but it was about 2,000 pounds. Now, how you put 2,000 pounds of water into uh, those tiles, that just kind of blows my mind. Like, that's a lot of water, not a small amount, but 2,000 pounds. I don't know. Water's heavy. Is, <laughs> it's yeah, water's heavy. <laughs> heavy, but the tiles, like, I guess there's enough of them to hold that much water. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that no, I'm, su I'm surprised, they're too. 90% nothing. <laughs> Right. Like it's, mm. there's very yeah. little actual mass in there. Yeah. So yeah, the tiles are 90% empty space. And so I guess uh, that's how that happens. So um, what they normally do is they waterproof with some kind of like a glass resin. It's like suspended in a liquid of some sort when they spray it on and then they cure those tiles. I'm not sure exactly how that process works, but the layer is about 0.45 millimeters or something in inches. I don't remember, but I you know, just did the conversion. Um, mm -hmm. But um, so, yeah, a thin layer of this glass. And so that glass got damaged by the hail. And then that's how the water got in. Um, and apparently they had used Scotch Guard on this mission and they had used it for several missions after that, which mm. surprised me. So that was how they were waterproofing these tiles was with Scotch Guard. And that also kind of blew my mind. I don't know if we've ever talked about Scotch Guarding heat tiles on the shuttle. That is wild. On the first mission, they were they used something called MTMS, which is methyl trimethyl xylosane method trimethyl methyl trimethoxyxylane methoxyxylane i guess yeah methyl trimethyl or trimethoxyxylane methyl trimethoxyxylane nice <laughs> but uh this but that did not survive re-entry so from that point forward they just used scotch guard or at least for the next four missions and then after that they moved on to some or they went back to uh the mtms then they used a different material called hmds which is another big word uh, hexamethyl disilazane. That's an easier one to pronounce. Mm. And that's how they waterproof the orbiters. But yeah, so they used uh, Scotchgard in the early days. Uh, 
And in fact, there was even, I don't know if you could find it, and I should have linked it, but there's actually, I guess, a little advertisement taken out in a magazine, it looks like, of the space shuttle by 3M, stating that, you know, they're the ones who keep the shuttle dry or something like that. So they were kind of proud of that fact. Yeah, if I'm if I'm reading this correctly, that PDF, it looks like they went back to Skoshgard uh, a couple oh, yeah, years yeah. later and used it almost entirely uh, other than uh, a single Atlantis flight that didn't use it until uh, Challenger's final flight. Wow. Yeah. That's such an interesting thing that you would use Scotchgard to waterproof the tiles on the space shuttle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I should I should have looked this up earlier, but there was a really great uh, Twitter thread that had good photos and really good explanations. Yeah. I, f- I found some person responding to a Starship tweet. As far as I know, NASA first tried to solve the waterproofing issue by basically spraying the entire shuttle with off-the-shelf Scotchgard. Unfortunately, the adhesive-slash-gap filler used to attach shuttle tiles to the orbital wasn't compatible, requiring the use of a mm. silane compound, DMOS, which was toxic. Oh, geez. And uh, the injection points, uh, there was actually, like, um, there, there were markings so that you could see where that injection mm-hmm. point, like a little circle and uh, every single one had it. And, you know, somebody would go through with a syringe and squirt waterproofing in every single one, every single time, just, <laughs> Oh man, I love shuttle, but she was such a camel. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Another interesting event during this particular launch was uh, that both of the SRB shoots failed to deploy and they sank. And this happened on one other mission much, much later uh, due to a different reason, I believe. So this was actually pretty cool. So I didn't know about this. So the um, the first shuttle flights, what they wanted to do was to install these pyrotechnic charges, which would actually cut the risers to the parachute, not like all of them, but about like half of them so that the parachutes would not generate any lift. And this was to be done once they had hit the water. And this was in order to prevent the boosters from being dragged because you don't want wind to pick them up and start, you know, hauling them around the ocean. So right. cut the parachute lines. Um, but what happened was, um, or how these worked was they had what were called G switches, which were basically these sensors that detect the G load. And then those would set off the pyrotechnics, which would then um, cut the risers. Mm-hmm. Um, however, these switches were set too low, the jettison of the frustrums set off the charges. So basically when the, the panels come off in order to like release the chutes, um, that process set off these charges and hmm. it, you know, cut the parachutes immediately. And so they just plummeted to the oceans and sank. Um, hmm. So that was a very interesting problem that they had. So they actually did away with those for a while um, until STS-61C, which is when they installed uh, saltwater sensors, which basically, you know, detected once they had hit the ocean, and then that would trigger the pyrotechnics, which would then cut the lines. I figured there'd be a big enough uh, gap between frustrum ejection and slamming into the surface of the ocean <laughs> that you... <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they were set too low. Plus, not necessarily, I mean, if the sensors are right there and uh, that ejection process uh, is violent enough, then you can probably hit some pretty high G-loads. It's just like if you hit something with your fist, right? That's a very high G-load, quote-unquote. I mean, that's not how you think of it, but that's what that is. Mm. I can't remember who it was. I just mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I shouldn't because I can't remember the guy who said it, um, who said that at small scales, all G-loads are in the thousands and all accelerations (laughs) are instantaneous or something like that, you know? (laughs) Okay, so I found the the tweet chain I was looking for, if you want to hear it. Okay. So this is from Dr. Phil Metzger. Um, he said the problem was that the shuttle had to sit through frequent rain- rainstorms while it was on the launch pad. And if rain seeped into the tiles, it would add a huge amount of weight to the vehicle. Um, 
So then he's, it's like he's talking directly to you, David. But why weren't the tiles simply sealed so the rain couldn't get in? I mean, if you had to cut a hole in the surface to inject mm -hmm. waterproofing spray, then the water shouldn't be able to get in anyhow, right? Well, no, because we couldn't actually seal the tiles. Why? Because the tiles were 90% hollow and were filled with air. And when the space shuttle flew into the vacuum of space, the air needed to easily get out of the tiles or then pressure would make them explode and they would not protect the shuttle <laughs> during landing. So why were they 80% hollow? Because the whole point of them was to be excellent insulators during hot reentry from space. They're basically made of tiny silica fibers that barely touched each other. So heat could barely conduct through them. Um, so well, then if they had to let the air out while I, I'm telling you, it's, <laughs> it's better than you think. <laughs> so then if they had to let the air out while launching and the coating couldn't keep the water out, then why have the coating? Two reasons. First, to be a smooth surface so that the plasma would flow without turbulence over the surface during reentry to minimize heating. And second, to have a high emissivity in the desired wavelength so that heat that did get into the tiles from the hot plasma would radiate back out into the space more easily than to go into the skin of the space shuttle. Thus, they were black over the hotter parts and white over the cooler parts. So they were hollow, filled with air that needed to get out while the shuttle was going uphill, but they had to be coated, which would restrict the air getting out. So the coating was simply left off near the base of every tile allowing the air an escape path um, and then that escape path meant that before launch water could get in and then to make all this worse uh dr metzger uh i think he'd let me call him phil uh points out <laughs> that the silica fibers are actually hydrophilic so like it, it's it's the worst case scenario possible that's very interesting it, it's a great twitter thread it's yeah it's yeah. uh like 30 oh 27 tweets long wow um, and uh the last tweet is is really lovely uh he says uh so when i look at shuttle tiles i think of these two things the white chevrons marking the communications and navigations antennas which i worked on for 10 years as part of the launch team and then the tiny holes where we sucked water out where, where we sucked water out after later becoming a physicist fond memories that's pretty cool yeah stop stopped yeah. using sealant they they wound up just sucking water out, like which is yep. just insane. <laughs> so following on to that, so once they were in orbit, they actually had to rotate the shuttle with the belly facing the sun in order to dry out the tiles, because mm. they were afraid that if if that water were to perhaps freeze, then that would be a much bigger problem because then you might be breaking tiles. Um, I don't mm. know how quickly the water would boil away because I mean once you hit the vacuum of space, I, it seems to me that you wouldn't have to worry about it freezing. Um, especially since the shuttle might be a little bit hot, you know, warm, let's say. But I guess they just wanted to be sure that no water was trapped inside um, those tiles. So they just had to, you know, like bake it out um, and mm -hmm. let the whole thing uh, sun dry. So you had to sun dry your tiles on orbit. Yeah, I feel like that's a trick for like mm -hmm. yeah, shuttle missions. Sometimes you need to orient it so that you get some sunlight on a certain part of the vehicle to warm something off. Yeah. So I guess we should talk about the payloads really quickly. So... Um, this was the first of the getaway specials. Uh, G001 is what this one was designated. I don't know about the experiments. Um, I just know that it was nine experiments from uh, Utah State University. I don't know what they were, but they were, you know, so college kids had some cool experiments that they could get up there for a fairly low rate because that's what the getaway special is. Mm. Um, there were two classified USAF missile launch detection systems. And Mattingly, I don't remember if this was in the book, or I, actually I think I read this somewhere else, but he described them as a rinky-dink collection of minor stuff that they wanted to fly. So basically, he didn't think much of it. And yeah. apparently, they didn't work anyway once they got to orbit. 
So these weren't like super sophisticated missile detection systems. They were much simpler than that. And uh, yeah, they didn't even work. <laughs> um, Go figure. Yeah. So I, I guess, I mean, this kind of shows just how much this was a test flight and they did want to do some science on board, but I think the priority was just to make sure that the shuttle was working. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't put it in the notes here, but yeah, they did some experiments on themselves. Did some biological stuff. They Or like rather, they just, you know, took some biometrics, I suppose. Uh, things of that nature. There was an electrophoresis system and a monodispersed latex reactor. And that flew for the second time. And it flew several times after this. So I had to look this up. I don't know what any of those words mean. Well, I do know what the words mean, actually, but I don't know what mm-hmm. they mean altogether. But basically, what that means is um, uh, this was to produce latex spheres of roughly the same size that are larger than those that can be produced on Earth. The idea was to produce these for commercial use. Normally on, on Earth, that's not possible which is due to buoyancy and sedimentation because basically, you know, these things settle because like the larger ones would probably rise to the top of the solution because they're more buoyant. These smaller mm. ones settle. And there are basically scientific industrial applications for this. Um, these little tiny latex spheres, um, they can be used, you know, to test the poricity of something, um, but they all have to be the same size in order to get an accurate reading. Um, and they can be used for other things having to do with pharmaceuticals and stuff like that. So pretty interesting stuff. Um, and uh, I guess they they were actually sold uh, because, again, this was for commercial use. So hmm. I don't know how much stuff flew on shuttle that was then used commercially or at least, you know, like directly. I'm not talking about like spinoffs, but stuff that, you know, was actually brought back and then sold to someone. But this was one of them. Hmm. Uh, so very, very interesting. I think if I'm seeing this correctly, it looks like the uh, that continuous flow electrophoresis experiment. They actually have it where the galley would end up on most of the shuttle missions and the mid-deck. So instead of where they could warm up their food, and so they had mm-hmm. this huge apparatus with a lot of <laughs> plus and minus signs on it and different things coming in. I guess on this one, they didn't need a galley. I mean, they had enough room. Yeah, it but... looks like they just yeah, stuck every all their food to the, uh, the lockers in the mid-deck. Mm-hmm. And uh, they also had an IECM, an Induced Environment Contamination Monitor. Uh, this was uh, a device that was held by Canadarm outside the shuttle to monitor the off-gassing from the orbiter. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, just trying to detect gases, whatever might come off the shuttle, and I assume a little bit of water vapor too, maybe, <laughs> um, <laughs> since they just took on a bunch of rain. But um, they were detecting some unusually high levels of hydrogen that they couldn't account for during, I believe it was this mission. This particular experiment flew a couple of times. I don't know, maybe not like a lot, but, you know, this was like the early days of shuttle. They did some pretty interesting stuff. I think maybe this was just to get an idea of perhaps how shuttle responded to the vacuum of space, maybe like to get an idea of what kinds of Mm -hmm. off-gassing you might get from various materials. I don't know if there's like a truly scientific reason for it. Perhaps there is, but um, I can't think of what that would be. Because I I don't think that they were monitoring the super rarefied atmosphere. It was more just shuttle, like as Mm -hmm. it says. So it's, you know, to monitor the shuttle itself. Well, which makes sense with all the different scientific and even commercial payloads that shuttle would deploy. You really want to know what you're deploying those things into, I guess. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I think think you're you're spot on. It probably was just a matter of characterizing shuttle and uh, an engineering test more than a... uh, trying to figure out the physics of the ionosphere. Yeah, but the, they, had other, they had other things for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think if you were deploying some highly sensitive equipment, you would want to know that, you know, if it's something that might be contaminated by trace amounts of these gases, then yeah, you might want to know what's going on there. Yeah. So this was the last flight that flew with functioning 
ejection seats. And I put functioning in scare quotes because it did fly with ejection seats after that, but they were not functioning. So the way that um, ejection seats work on the shuttle, and we've discussed this a lot, um, it's kind of a point of fascination, is that you have two seats on the flight deck and just those two where uh, the astronauts can actually, you know, eject from the shuttle, but just those two because there are these two panels that actually have to detach then uh, you have the seat itself, which, you know, rockets out of the shuttle. But obviously, if it's a shuttle with, say, five to seven crew or something like that, which is what mm-hmm. the shuttle can handle, those other astronauts, uh, they're kind of out of luck. So that's not a good look if you, if you have, you know, the commander and pilot who are uh, sat where they are and uh, they get to leave, but you don't. Um, not that it would have been a particularly pleasant uh, ride back down, um, assuming that you survived, because uh, uh, I think... I mean, at least my take on it was that these ejection seats weren't particularly practical and they were only good for a very small portion of the ascent um, because once you got high enough up, you're hitting very high speeds you're, you, and you also have the plume from the SRBs, which was a huge problem. So you would be ejecting into that. There's just a, a whole bunch of things that prevent this from uh, being used uh for any significant portion of the ascent. On following flights, what's interesting is that um, on the very next flight, actually, on STS-5, they kept the ejection seats, but Commander Vance D. Brand thought that it was more ethical to disable them. So basically, if you know something happens to the shuttle, we all go down with the ship. Um, we're not going to just, you know, say see ya and mm. leave. I always kind of wondered how the uh, uh, the panels that would get blown overhead, right? There was, mm-hmm. did they still have all the controls or, you know, all the switches and uh, electronics overhead that they typically have on a shuttle? And the answer is yes. Yeah. I guess they just had a did. guillotine that would just go and slice through a, enough of that and then have these thrusters kind of eject the panels. Mm-hmm. But um, one thing that I thought really stuck out to me was that when they were talking about the the envelope during flight when they could use these when they were low enough in the atmosphere that was one thing and that was fine uh, i think it was maybe below three kilometers um i don't remember the exact thing uh but then above that you would end up passing back through the plumes on your mm-hmm. way down and so that was no good <laughs> you, you would not use the ejection seats then but apparently according to this one document i was looking at if you ejected between 9 and 30.5 kilometers altitude, which, again, how you survive that uh, in your pressure suit, but the plumes basically are survivable at that point. I guess they, they've rarefied enough uh, when you re-intersect them that that wouldn't be an oh, issue. interesting. Okay. And so that was one thing that they uh, had accounted for, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I mean, but yeah, it doesn't seem likely that it, uh, those speeds and altitudes, like it just, that sounds, that, 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 that sounds hellish. Like you're, you know, I mean, yeah. good luck. Yeah. So this, uh, flight landed on July 4th. Um, and this was a big deal since the president was going to be there. So this is President Reagan and they really wanted to land on July 4th. Apparently it didn't matter when they took off. They were still going to land on July 4th. That was the <laughs> deal. So again, not a very mission heavy mission. It, it was more like just get up there and come back. It doesn't matter how long you're up there, but they had to come back on July 4th. The president was there and apparently there was like over 45,000 people there, like spectators just watching. So this was like a big deal. Mm. So apparently like Mattingly and Hartsfield, they made a sign which was kept on board the shuttle that said, welcome to Columbia. 30 minutes ago, this was in space. So, um, <laughs> and I don't know if when they say this was in space, they mean Columbia or the sign actually now that I think, because I thought they meant the actual sign at first, but now that I'm thinking about it, I guess they just meant welcome to Columbia. This whole thing was in space 30 minutes ago. All right. <laughs> um, but I don't know if Reagan ever saw it because I don't think he went into the shuttle. 
I don't think so. I think he, you know, I mean, he gave a big speech and everything, but I don't know if he was ever inside of it. But yeah, during his uh, speech, uh, President Reagan declared the end of the shuttle test flights and the beginning of its operational phase. And uh, so that was a successful conclusion to the shuttle test phase of the shuttle program. The STS is one through four. Uh, that is your This Week in Space Flight History, the last flight with just two people on board, which I don't know if I actually mentioned that specifically. I think I did, right? Yeah, the final two-person Yeah, okay. at the top of the uh, TWISF. Yeah. Yeah, so the very last uh, flight with just uh, two crew. And then after that, I guess it was f- no fewer than five, or was it maybe four? I think it was four. five, right? Oh, STS-135 okay. had a crew of four. So okay. I'm certain there was no crews of three. Thanks, David. That was uh, that was a really good one. Um, so next week is going to be the 20 8th of June to the 4th of July. Man, we're actually in summer, I guess. Um, uh, 28th of June to the 4th of July. And then, uh, Dennis, did you have a clue for next week? I do. Next week in 1979, really big eye in the sky. Nice. Okay. Well, if you think you know what really big eye in the sky means, uh, send in your guess. Uh, the best way to do it is to shoot us a tweet. Uh, use the hashtag this week SF. You can also send us a direct message as long as you include the hashtag, uh, or email or, uh, use discord. Uh, my bot can now handle, uh, this week SF guesses. Uh, there's a, a slash command for it. Uh, a bunch of different ways. Twitter's probably the fastest and easiest, but I think it's good to, to go over all of them every once in a while. So shoot us a tweet, use the hashtag this week SF and good luck, everybody. Good luck. All right. Let's do upcoming space flight events then. And we got seven of those. So a lot of stuff going on, uh, some launches and some other things. Uh, what's the first thing, Ben? Yes. So first up, we have an Ariane 5 ECA plus flying Miasat 3D and GSAT 24. Uh, Miasat is a Malaysian uh, communication satellite and GSAT is an Indian uh, uh, communication satellite. Uh, both are going to geostationary orbit. Um, we've got a little bit of a launch window for this one. Um, so the window opens Wednesday, June 22nd at 2103 hours UTC and continues uh, almost up to midnight uh, 2243 hours UTC. Um, so if you are um, not in UTC, what would that be? Uh, if you're uh, two hours away from UTC, this is going to be uh, a midnight spanning uh, launch window here. This uh, Ariane 5, of course, is going to be launching out of uh, Kourou in French Guiana. Uh, looks like they are using Ariane Launch Area 3 for this one. And then next up on June 23rd, we have uh, footage of something happening on orbit. And so this is coverage of the release of Northrop Grumman's NG-17 Cygnus, uh, the one that we talked about earlier had uh, actually boosted station. It was the first uh, Cygnus with that capability. And uh, it's named after uh, space shuttle legend Piers Sellers. And so coverage of the release will begin at 6.30 a.m. Eastern, with the release itself scheduled at 6.50 a.m. Eastern. And then after that, on June 23rd, same day, the Bebe Colombo will be making, um, or Bebe Colombo will be making its second of six Mercury flybys. So the closest approach will be at 0944 UTC on the 23rd of June. Um, you can't watch that apparently on NASA TV. I'm not seeing it listed there, but obviously you can still follow yeah. it. Um, you know, there'll be many updates. You can just follow uh, that particular Twitter account, um, and find out more information about that flyby. Yeah, it's, cool. a, it's an ESA like, mission, so I would be a little yeah. surprised if it wasn't NASA TV. But hopefully they'll have hopefully they'll have a stream. That'd be pretty cool. 
All right, so after that, we'll have uh, an Electron flying the Capstone mission. We mentioned it a couple times. It's been delayed at least twice, um, but uh, it's so gonna, it's going to be so exciting to watch. Uh, of course, Capstone is the Cislunar Autonomous Positioning System Technology Operations and Navigation Experiment. Uh, maybe the, uh, the acronym is not so obvious, but... Uh, what this vehicle is going to go do uh, should be pretty familiar. It's going up to um, lunar orbit. Um, it's going to be uh, proving out the near rectilinear, near rectilinear halo orbit, or near ho, as we and only we pronounce it. <laughs> um, just so exciting. It's It's got like almost no delta V, so it's doing this really fun uh, flight up up to the moon um really really exciting and it's also super exciting um to see rocket lab uh flying their first uh extraterrestrial mission i i think this counts as extraterrestrial okay so right now capstone is scheduled to fly saturday june 25th at 10 hundred hours utc a nice round number and of course that's uh, going to be flying out of new zealand the mahia peninsula and then next up y'all know the routine by now we have a starlink launch <laughs> and so this is on june 26th uh falcon 9 block 5 will be taking starlink group 4-21 to orbit it's another batch of starlinks and uh this booster is uh serial number uh b1058 and has flown 12 times so far. And so this will be its 13th uh, launch where it will be landing, uh, trying to do an ocean landing on the barge. Mm. And so uh, again, that's uh, Sunday, June 26th at uh, 0143 UTC, and it will be flying out of the Cape uh, Launch Complex 39A. Yeah, and didn't they just have a 13th time flown booster? I think so. I think I just heard yeah. that. I think 10, 1060... Uh, yeah, when it did a Starlink on the 17th, two days ago. <laughs> yeah, it was just yeah. a couple days ago. And wow. then there's this one, and then I think there's another one that's coming up very shortly, too. Like, they have a whole, they have, like, three 13s coming up. Well, they Yeah, had... Booster 1051 in July will do its 13th. So, they're now in, they're firmly in the teens. So that's pretty cool. Pretty wild. And then after that, on the 28th of June, we have another SpaceX uh, launch in another Falcon 9 Block 5. And uh, that is launching SES-22, and that's a geostationary communication satellite. So that'll be launching from Space Launch Complex 40, or Slick 40, uh, from the Cape. And the exact time is at uh, 5.04 p.m., and that's Eastern time. So what is that? 21.04 UTC. So so the last launch that we have is a U.S. Space Force launch, um, and they... They haven't announced a time for it, uh, so this this may or may not actually be flying on this day. It looks like it's it like it might be an NET and no earlier than, but we'll we'll see. It's worth giving you a heads up one way or the other. It's an Atlas V in the five four one configuration, and the mission is called USSF twelve. Um, there are two payloads flying on this uh, on this launch. One is called the Wide Field of View Testbed Satellite, and it's 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 pretty cool. So it's uh, it's sponsored by the Space and Missile Systems Center, but it's being managed by NASA Ames. They're going to be evaluating a, a new sensor called the Overhead Persistent Infrared, or OPIR, which is a six degree 
uh, staring sensor. Originally, uh, OPIR was going to be flying on uh, a commercial geostationary satellite, just like uh, as a as a ride along. Uh, but I, I don't know if they weren't able to find an appropriate partner or what, but they wound up turning it into its own mission, which is pretty neat. During development, uh, they were considering including the AMSAT P4B, uh, Phase 4B, which was um, a software-defined uh, amateur radio satellite, which is cool, uh, uh, built by uh, Virginia Tech, um, but it wound up not being included. So that's one of them. Uh, that's WFOV, Wide Field of View. The other one is more in line with what you would expect from a mission that has USSF in the title. And that's actually the USSF-12 satellite. So um, it's also called USSF-12 Ring, which is because... Um, it is flying on an ESPA ring, which is the EELV secondary payload adapter. EELV is the advanced evolved launch vehicle. I don't remember. <laughs> um, but, uh, the, it's a, it's a ring shaped, um, multiple payload, you know, right along kind of thing. And so we don't know what, what the Air Force has put or what the Space Force has put on it. Um, but you know, it's going to have multiple payloads just due to the nature, um, of an ESPA. Um, some of them may, uh, be free flyers of their own. Um, some of them are probably just going to uh, stay with the ring, but you know, it's this bus that provides power and everything. It, it's, it's pretty neat, um, but we don't know uh, what DOD has, has put on there. All right. So those are the payloads, you know, the rocket, it's an Atlas five, awesome rocket. That's fun to watch. <laughs> Um, and this is going to be flying on Wednesday, June 29th at an unstated time, but because, uh, there's a, a NASA involved payload, it should be, it should be live streamed, I'm assuming. But if it flies on the 29th, it will be flying out of Slick 41. Okie doke. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events for this week. So with that, let's do it with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Colin, Mike, Kent, and Chubby, James Sutherland, VT, Deathkin, Cy Kyle, and Chris for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such show notes, and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for vision patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it, and we'll see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.